Welcome to the Heart of the Father podcast. We're glad you're here and able to listen in. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart through this message and that you be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Good morning. Well, please stand with me. Let's start out moving. Would you like the Lord to encounter you this morning with his word? All right. Lift your hand. Let's pray. Father, we have come here to meet you. We've come here to hear your voice, and we have come here to respond with our whole heart to you. Would you encounter us by your Holy Spirit, who is the teacher of the church? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us hearts to perceive what you are saying and to receive all that you have for us? I pray that you would give us that grace this day and that no one would escape here or the live stream without being impacted for eternity with seeds that lodge in them and produce fruit forever. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, we're going to start in Luke chapter 3. Most of it's going to be in Luke chapter 8. Our calling as a church, the mandate that Jesus gave us when he was, I I get this, this picture in Matthew 28 of Jesus standing before them and giving them the charge and then rising off the ground and then watching him go into the sky. That blows my mind. But he's giving the charge. And the charge is essentially this. Our mission is to make what? Okay. To make, to make disciples. And here's my definition of discipleship. I think it's accurate scripturally. Discipleship is the submitting of every area of our life to the lordship of Jesus. Would you agree with that? So that is a process. True? It's a process. And so I want to talk about one of the core elements of discipleship this morning that Jesus emphasized over and over in the scripture, and I discovered as I felt like the Lord was putting this on my heart, that there's areas of this where I have become a little bit insensitive, and it doesn't strike me the way it did before. It's pretty subtle. You know, the mindsets of the world, being around it all the time, it can get on you, and it's just like a What's it like? It's like a glaze that gets over you and makes you insensitive. How many have ever had leeches on you? Raise your hand if you've had leeches. Okay, there's a few of us that have had leeches. When I was in a teenager, I lived on a golf course in North Carolina. And at night, buddies and I would go into the lake where you had to hit across the water to get the golf balls out. And you feel on the bottom there, and you can feel them. There, there's a lot of golf balls because there's a lot of really bad golfers everywhere. And we'd be out there in the dark, not that we were doing anything wrong, um, but just getting golf balls. And we'd throw them out there onto the fairway and collect them in garbage bags and then take them and wash them and on Saturday and Sunday morning, go out on the, the tees and sell them to the golfers again. Um, But one day I was out there on a Friday night and I came out and I didn't really feel anything and I'm toweling off, I'm drying myself off and I feel something on my leg. I'm like, oh, what is that? 
feels like a slug. Oh, it's a leech. And then I had another one on my ear. There's a leech on my ear and a leech on my leg. I'm like, what in the world? If you want to know how to get them off, you burn them off. Right? So in those days, we had cigarettes. Not anymore. Burn, burn them off, and they, they let go. They say, ouch, and they come off. But here's the thing. The mindset of the world is like that. You don't feel them when they get on you. You don't feel them at all. They don't hurt. They're just there sucking your blood, and you don't realize what's happening. And that's like the mindsets of the world that somehow make, they, they suck our blood, and we don't even realize what's happening. And I think with this topic in particular, I just have felt a stirring to refresh in my own soul and in our souls, because we're called to be disciples, which is a radical thing. And so... I want to talk today about how disciples do money. How disciples do money. This is a radical thing. I'm not going to share every principle. I have seven. Don't be afraid. Um, But there's lots of principles that the Bible teaches about money. And I'm not going to talk about all of those. But Jesus emphasized some to his disciples that I feel like are core, important principles for us to learn how to deal with money. Because money is a huge issue with Jesus. Have you ever read the Gospels? Like two-thirds of all of his parables, he talks about money. It's right and wrong use. 15% of all of the verses in the Gospels talk about money. That's a, that's a big percentage. There's a lot there. Why does Jesus go after the issue of money? And why is money so important to our discipleship? If our lives are going to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, money is one of the big important areas of how we submit our life to the Lordship of Jesus. So I have seven principles that I want to cover quickly, Lord willing. Um, Luke chapter 3. Luke is one of my favorite gospels because Luke talks about discipleship uh, a lot, and I appreciate his uh, radical and forceful presentation of what Jesus said about discipleship. So Luke 3, this is going to be where we find um, point number one. This is John the Baptist. He's coming and he's preaching the kingdom. And in verse 7, He says, so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Notice that phrase. What is the fruit of real repentance in coming to God? And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him. Notice, the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? So the crowds are asking the question, if you want us to repent and the kingdom of God is coming near and we're actually going to submit ourselves to the reign of God, that's what the kingdom of God is. It's when we submit ourselves to his rulership. What are we supposed to do? Verse 10 and verse 11. And he would answer and say to them, 
The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. That's his answer to the question that the crowd asked. Verse 12, and some of the tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. That's group number two. And maybe you're seeing a pattern here. Verse 14, and some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Did you notice for the crowds, for the tax collectors, and for the soldiers, he essentially gave the same answer to all of them. And what did it have to do with? It had to do with your stuff. If you are really repenting and submitting your life to the lordship of God, whose kingdom is coming and being proclaimed, then something radical is going to happen to the way that you handle money. The river is going to turn the other way, and instead of being a taker, all of a sudden when your heart changes, you're going to become a giver. You're going to give your tunic. You're going to give your food. You're not going to try to extort people out of money or manipulate it from them. You're going to become a giver. That's what happens in the heart when we submit to the Lordship of Jesus. It reverses the flow of the river in our life. Principle number one. Living like your money is about you and not about Jesus is not acceptable for disciples. So question, will you honestly submit all of your financial decisions and pursuits to the Lordship of Jesus? Will you honestly submit all of your financial decisions and pursuits to the Lordship of Jesus. He's asking. Because the way that we act with our money determines whether we really have made him Lord and we're his disciples. Because disciples release everything to him. I'm not saying there's not principles of wisdom. But I'm saying there is the principle of release. God has all wisdom, but here's the issue. Is it your money or is it God's money? Are we managers of it or do we own it is the question. And very often, it's very easy to slide over into this where we act like we own our possessions and our money. And the real truth is when we recognize that we are disciples, we recognize that we do not own them at all. How many are happy with point one so far? All right, turn to chapter 12. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time together this morning. Chapter 12, it's another powerful passage from Jesus talking to his disciples now. If you read back in the beginning of the chapter, he's, he's talking to his disciples. All of this is conversation with his disciples, and some of it the crowd overhears. Verse 13 
is where I want to start. So let's read this in, in chunks and then make some observations. So I want to read verses 13 through 15. Jesus talking to his disciples, because in verse 12, he says, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour what you ought to say. So he's talking to his disciples, but there's people around in the crowd that are listening. And so here's this guy, someone in the crowd, verse 13, said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Verse 15. Then he said to them, Jesus saying to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. The word is translated covetousness and greed throughout the New Testament. It's a very interesting word. The Greek word is pleonexia, which doesn't matter. But what it means is, it's two Greek words put together, and it means have more. Have more. Well, I'm not covetous because I don't want my other, I don't want your car. I don't want your wife. I Have more. Have more. Here we're talking about the direction of the heart. Greed and covetousness is a symptom that we're never satisfied with how much we may have. We always want to have more. And even though we live and we need this message in America, 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 we need this message in the American church. Because we live in the richest society. This is not a guilt trip. I want to get you to the place where you don't ever again feel guilty about your money. Ever. You never see a picture of a baby with a bloated stomach that's starving in India and feel guilty again. Never. I want you to live where you're free from guilt. This is how you do it. Everything is always available because it's not yours. It's yours only to manage and to do what he says. So notice verse 15 again. Beware and be on your guard. They're just like leeches. They get on there and they suck your blood and you don't know that they're there. Be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. There are many socially acceptable forms of greed, even among Christians. I'm believing God to make me rich so I can be a blessing to the missions. Maybe it's his will. I believe God makes people rich. But the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6, that if you seek to be rich, you pierce yourself through with many pangs and enter into ruin and perdition. That's pretty sobering language. What's the problem with wanting to be rich? Have more. Have more. Have more. Have more. Have more, have more, have more. No, disciples say, Lord, whatever you want me to have, and whatever I have, I use it for the purposes that you give it to me for, and that you say I can use it for. If we submitted 
all of our resources to the Lordship of Jesus, things would be different. Um, Y'all, let me just put in a little caveat here. This is in no way a beat down to this body. This is honestly, this is true before the Lord. He knows it's true. This is the most generous body of people that I have ever been associated with in my life. I see it happen all the time. That's surreal. Where people are blessing each other, giving car, I mean, all that. It's beautiful. It's powerful. But this is something that we need to be reminded of consistently because the leeches are everywhere in the water. Haven't you noticed? And Jesus wants us to have the kind of cutting edge where we view eternity and that's what we're really, really living for. We're not just doing the lip service. One of my heroes in the faith is John Wesley. You know John Wesley, the founder of what became Methodism. But Wesley, he, he's one of those guys, when I read his writings, I have literally cried and I said, God, thank you. For this man who loved you so much. He was born in a poor home. His father was a preacher. They had nine children. He went to debtor's prison. They languished. The mother raised them. They were very poor. John Wesley was educated as a young man. His mom did a great job. Susanna Wesley, she had her nine kids. One of them, they had ten and one died. She's got a little room there. That's all she's got. She doesn't have five bedroom house. She's got a little room, and in her quiet time, she would say, now kids, when I cover my head with my apron, this is my quiet time. You study your Greek, you study your Latin, you do what you got to do, but like you don't bother mama because I'm seeking God. She would cover her head for two hours every day in her time with, quiet time with the Lord, and she raised them to love Jesus. When John Wesley became a man, he got a job teaching at Oxford University, Smart guy. His first year there, he made 30 pounds a year. So that doesn't mean anything to us in the 1700s. That was a decent wage where you had a little bit of extra money if you were a single man. John was excited about his new position. He had an apartment there on the campus. He came back. He had gone out shopping, and he bought some paintings that he was going to put up on his wall. And it was a cold winter day. And he came in there, and the, the lady who was the cleaning lady for those apartments in Oxford came in shivering, had no, cold, had no coat, and she's trembling in cold, and, excuse me, sir, uh, get this finished, and the Lord convicted his heart. He reached in his pocket to give her some money, and he realized that he had spent everything that he had when he went out shopping for decorations on his apartment wall. And he purposed right then. It marked his life. He said, my extravagance, so that's not extravagant. He didn't buy a Tesla. My extravagance is keeping me from actually being the hands and feet of Jesus to this woman who is in need. I'm never going to live this way again. Wesley, you may not know this about John Wesley. For a, a pretty good long period of time, he had the highest earned income of any person in England. He was massively wealthy as far as his income went. Why? Because he was the author of a squabillion books that everybody loved to read. So he went from 30 pounds a year, and he purposed, I can live on 28 pounds a year comfortably and have everything I need, so that's where I'm going to live. 
There were, it got to the point where he made 1,400 pounds a year, which was an enormous sum of money. Think in terms of millions in our buying power today. His whole life, he lived until he was in his 90s. His whole life, he lived on 28 to 30 pounds a year and gave every other cent away to the gospel and to bless the poor for the rest of his life. That's beautiful. He said, I measure everything by the price it will bring in eternity. That's a beautiful way to live. I'm not saying that the Lord is telling every one of us to live that way, but there's something that he is telling us because we have a lot of resources. Listen, this is not about guilt. This is about passion for the purpose of God in the world. The rest of his life, Wesley lived that way. Do you know that there are groups of people all around the world and the country who are, are the same way even today? Where they purpose, they're, they're only going to set their standard of living at a certain level. And everything that they make above that, they're going to give for the purposes of eternity. The leeches out there say, accumulate. You need to get more. You need to get bigger. Accumulate. You need to get new. You need to get nicer. Accumulate. Accumulate. It's the American spirit. Accumulate more. You can get more. Have more. Have more. Have more. And Jesus says in the scripture, it's idolatry. Can I read you two verses from the New Testament that say that? Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is the same word, pleonexia, which is idolatry. Ephesians 5, 3 and 5. But immorality and impurity or greed, pleonexia must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. If you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's what Jesus said. So, is this a beat down? No. This is a call to burn off the leeches and to say again as a disciple, Jesus, what do you want from me with your money? Of course the Bible teaches us to take care of our family. Of course the Bible teaches us to do that. There's lots of things. It teaches us to go to the ant. It teaches us to be diligent in our work. All of those things are good and right. But there's a heart of a disciple with his money that's different than the way that the world thinks. And the reason, honestly, can I, can I just tell you that this really is true. This is not a beatdown. This is, I'm looking in my own heart saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? The funds for world evangelization are easily in the church. Easily. Easily. It's just a matter of how much have more we have to have. And I'm saying, 
It's the spirit of the age. It's not the spirit of the kingdom. Hey, I have a house. I have cars. I get it. I'm not drawing a line. But there is a line somewhere. There's a line somewhere. You have to find out what that line is in your own heart. If you're Zacchaeus, the line is pretty radical. Lord, I'll give half of everything that I have. That's a pretty radical line. If you're the rich young ruler and you've got a stage four cancer, the line is even more radical. Give up everything that you have and sell it and come and follow me. Then you'll have treasure. Because Jesus is the one who sees and knows what's in the heart and he calls out what you need to do. If you're Barnabas and you're just overflowing with the Spirit and you have a field and you see that there's need in the community, you just go of your own good accord and say, God, this is awesome. It's so beautiful, isn't it? Sell a field, bring the proceeds for the relief of the poorer. So the line is not like a straight line. I believe tithing is a good place to start. I don't think it's the end game. The reason that I don't is that the Pharisees were meticulous tithers, right? Jesus said, you, you go down and with our little playing card and separate these seeds that are the size of pepper grains to make sure that you get exactly 10%. You're meticulous about tithing. But what else did he say about them? Did that cure their covetous heart? No, then they just went to the widows and plundered their houses, manipulated them to give them their money. No, that didn't deal with the covetousness. I tell you what deals with the covetousness is where you really let Jesus go. You let him draw the line. How many think John Wesley, when he left his body when he was 90 some odd years old, regretted that he didn't take all that money and live in a castle in England? You think he regretted it? You think he said, doggone it, I could have lived in that castle that I always passed on my horse. That's, that would have been so amazing. It would have been Wesley Castle. You think he thought like that? He weighed everything in light of the price it would bring. And eternity is powerful. And it's beautiful. Jesus calls out two main indicators that our money is our master. And he gives the cure for each of them as we follow along. Principle number two is this. Greed is often disguised and easy to rationalize under the banner of my rights and even wisdom. Here's a young man probably, if he's calling out to Jesus to come and be the arbiter about the inheritance, he's probably the younger brother. He probably has an older brother who is the one who's in charge of doing the inheritance And he's unhappy about the way that it's happening. And he cries out to Jesus, Jesus, fix this. My brother's not doing me right. And I find it amazing that Jesus' warning is, even what you think you have a right to, right? That's your inheritance. You have a right to that. Jesus said, it's greed in your heart, dude. 
I see it. It's as clear as day. You want to have more, and that's your, and you're going to get yours, and you're going to scrape and get, and you're going to get for yourself because your river's flowing in the wrong direction. Because kingdom people, the river flows out, and there's an outflow. And if there's not an outflow, there's not spiritual health. If there's not a consistent outflow, and I want to say if there's not a sacrificial outflow, there's not spiritual health. It's really true. The happiest people I have ever known in my life are ones who are extravagantly generous. The most miserable people that I have ever known in my life, I remember them as a kid because they were friends of my parents. Famous surgeon. Wealthy, brilliant, had all the accolades, lived in a massive mansion, drove Jaguars and Maseratis, and his family was the most miserable people I'd ever seen. It's not where we want to go. Let's read verses 16 through 21. You guys doing okay? Thank you for letting me share this. Verse 16 to 21. I'm sorry, 16, Luke 12, 16 to 21. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning with himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? I want you to notice as we're reading through this, every time that he says I or my, it's all through here. Because his money is all about him. He began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God, this is another one of those but God verses that we don't quote. Nearly as much as Ephesians 2. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This man is a fool for at least two reasons. He refuses to acknowledge God's ownership of his life and possessions. In the, in the scripture, the fool is the person who lives like there's no God. This is all about me. There's no, there's no God. I don't care about God's rules or what you say God's rules. This is about me. This is me. That's the fool. So he's a fool for that reason, but he's also a fool in that he's investing everything in what he cannot keep. It won't last. There's no U-Hauls behind hearses going to funerals. All your stuff, every single bit of your stuff is going to go to somebody else when you die. You can either decide what that is in the future or you can let it just happen. Here's principle number three. To view our money primarily as a source of our own pleasure, leisure, and security 
is to be a fool. To view our money primarily as a source of our own pleasure, leisure, and security is to be a fool. Look at verse 19 again. He's he's parading what his treasure is right here. Here's his treasure. So you have many goods laid up for many years to come. What's that? I got financial security. Take your ease. What's that? Let's just chill at the beach. Let's just chill in the mountains. Let's just chill and do whatever we want. Eat, drink, and be merry. What's that? Let's party and have a good time. Let's just be happy. And God said, if that's what you're doing with your money, you're a fool. God said, you're a fool. Oh, sorry if that's a little intense. You okay? I, I want to get some of the leeches off. All right, verses 22 to 32, and then we're going to move on through a little quicker here. Here we go, for 22. He said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot even do a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which are alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? Y'all, I have a confession to make. There's a lot of years in my life where I was a man of little faith. I had seven children to raise and I was like, oh, God, I can't do this. I cannot do No, I'm serious. I can't do this. When braces came due, I mean, how much braces cost? All seven of my children had braces. And two of them had twice. I'm like, really, Lord? How many know how much college costs? I'm like, Jesus. There's lots of nights where I'm, where I'm laying in bed with my wife. She can testify to this. She's going, baby, what's wrong? I'm going, I can't, I can't do this. She's like, honey, it's not all on you. I said, it is all on me. That's what I said. She'll tell you the truth. It is on me. Who else is going to do it? Because... I was anxious and fearful lots of times. What did that say about my own heart? So I didn't honor the Lord by trusting him to take care of me. This is, this is the power of this passage. The, the cure for anxiety with our money and fear of not... Let's, let's be honest. All of us at some point are driven by the fear of lack, not having enough. If I do that, then I won't. And the, and the Lord Jesus is saying in this passage, listen, the Father knows you have need. 
The Father's the one who is going to cause it to come. Do you need to work hard? Absolutely. It's not going to be the magic mailbox most of the time. It's going to be you working and God enabling and giving you favor. But nevertheless, it's the Father who's overseeing what's happening. You don't trust Him as Father. And so notice how He speaks about the Father and His care for them. This is a cure for anxiety. But if God closes, this is 28, the grass in the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink and do not keep worrying. Here's a commandment. Don't keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your father knows that you need these things, but seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Don't be afraid. I like this. Don't be afraid, little flock. You know that phrase, little flock? You know what that implies is you're fragile. You're fragile. So, so many times in my life, like, I just can't do this. I can't do this. Conversations Diane and I have had before. We're raising seven children. I'm working business and all the other stuff we were doing, either home churching or on staff here. I'm like, man, I can't. I just, I just don't want to do this anymore. I just don't want to do this anymore. And she says, well, honey, I don't want to do this anymore either, but what are we going to do? <laughs> we're, we're going to trust the Lord. We're going to trust the Lord. Because he's our shepherd. If the Lord is my shepherd, I won't want, I won't lack. The fear of lack drives us to the have more because we think if we have enough more, we'll have security. And if something bad happens, we're going to have a big enough cushion. And we're going to want And the Lord said, that's the way the world does it. That's not what I'm saying you should do. You don't have to take care of yourself. I'm not saying we don't be diligent. You understand. There's, there's, there's our part for sure. Like Dave says, there's our part and there's God's part. But look, when we're doing our part, it's still not enough. Let's be honest. It's not enough. It's ridiculously not enough. I think about the, I mean, I'm at the stage now where all my kids are grown, and I'm thinking about all of the money. I had people when I was in business like, oh, dude, you're never going to retire, are you? Well, I don't really want to, uh, but no, you got all these kids like, well, you know, you know how much it costs to raise a child from birth to get them through college, whatever. It's like 200 and something thousand dollars, whatever, like times seven. How much is that? I'm like, oh, just shut up. <laughs> Leeches, get off of me. But the father said, little flock, I know you're a knucklehead and you're weak. I know that. But I'm your father and I'm your shepherd. And here's what he says in verse 32. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. The father's heart is gracious and good, and he goes beyond what we could ever possibly do. We can trust him. He's faithful. He's God. You know what this enables us to do? It really does enable us to go, whatever you want whatever you want. Like, if we'll make our heart vulnerable and say, Lord, put on my heart whatever you want because I'm just a manager of your stuff. We can't take care of ourselves, but he is faithful to take care of us. 
principle number that I read for. Oh, no, here's four. Disciples are called to trust the Father and His care so much that we actually live without, without anxiety and worry about our provision. Did, do you know that He commands us not to worry about this stuff? Yo, I'm, I'm guilty so many times over the years. But He said, mercy. He still did it. He's still unfaithful. All right, let's read verse 33 and 34, and then we're done. Sounds quick, doesn't it? This is a two-bottle message. Oops. Verse 33. Jesus talking to his disciples now. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. It was Jim Elliott who said in his journal, who was martyred by the Ecuador Indians in the 1950s, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to buy what he can never lose. He was martyred. His wife carried on the work, Elizabeth Elliot. You might have known her name. She carried on the work. She became a seminary professor with multiple doctorates, a very brilliant woman. But they went back to that place and evangelized that place. And today, it's a, there's a massive Christian um, church that thrives there. Why would Jesus tell his disciples to sell their possessions and to give them? Here's the obvious answer. They didn't have a savings account. That's no problem. Just sell. Because it's so important that you have a consistent outflow from the money thing that wants to grab your heart and choke the life out of you. It's so important that you have a consistent outflow that you do whatever you got to do to get something to give. That's the point. Jesus' disciples, listen, they left everything to follow him. They walked away from their businesses They left everything to follow him. And he knew that when he told them this. Now, guys, don't worry about it. I'm going to give you a pass because I know you already gave up everything for me. No. Listen, here's what you need to do. You've got to keep the river moving in the right direction, even if that means selling something to get something to be a blessing to let the outflow go because as soon as the river turns back the wrong direction, you're in a mess and your heart get stuck and your relationship with the Lord is affected having a consistent outflow of money from our lives is not optional this is number five even when it requires uncomfortable faith and sacrifice we love to shout about faith but a lot of faith is pretty uncomfortable have you read Hebrews 11 lately Have you read Hebrews 11 lately, the hall of faith? Many of them died without receiving it because they were choosing a better reward. What were they doing? They were saying eternity and the things that Jesus has promised are so much more weighty and valuable than these things 
I can let them go and be happy. Even if it's my life. The Hebrews, the, the, the reality of faith is that it often, in most every case, read through Hebrews 11 with different eyes. The hall of faith is men and women who obeyed God even though it cost them everything. Sacrificial obedience is at the heart of faith. You go, well, I'm not going to obey out of duty, brother. Well, let me tell you something. Obeying out of duty is better than disobeying out of freedom. I'm not going to get into striving. You should. Paul said, I strive by the power that works mightily within me, right? Strive is always a positive word. Strive to enter in. But now we've made striving a curse word. I'm not going to strive. Striving is good if it's done by the power of the Spirit. A little tangent, sorry. Here's how we attack the have more leeches. We attack the have more leeches by being intentional about taking our ragged soul before the Lord and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do with this stuff, money? What do you want? And mean it. It usually is going to be a process. Because our first thing is, no, we've got all these reasons. We've already got all the ten reasons why God, like, I've found in my life when I argue with the Lord about things like that, he, he never listens to me anyway. Like, he's already got his mind made up. He just doesn't listen to me. Like, I'm not going to persuade him. I'm talking to the, the genius who created the cell in the universe, right? And I'm trying to convince him with my argument. He's like, mm, not really. And this principle number six is in this verse as well. The most important purpose of money on earth is to maximize reward in heaven. Y'all believe that? You're afraid to say yes. You're so afraid to say yes. The most important thing about money. Yes, it's important. We took care of our mothers for 23 years in our house. That's important. The Lord wants you to. But the most important thing about the stuff that we have in this life is how we maximize the reward in heaven. He said you can make yourself money belts that never wear out an unfailing treasure where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. You can't lose it. Keeping your treasure in stuff on this earth is like putting a popsicle in your pocket. Oh, I got that popsicle. That's so good. That, that dove bar, that's so amazing. Man, I can't wait to get that. It's not going to last long. You're going to wish you didn't put that in your pocket. That's why Jesus said to the man, you're a fool. You had all these resources. You did nothing with them that will go on into eternity. That's foolish. Money is powerful. Things are powerful if they're used under the lordship of Jesus to further his purposes. And I know, y'all, trust me. I know. I raised seven children. I know. We're Americans. But I feel like I would not be faithful 
if I did not challenge us with this, because this is like our blind spot in, in the West where we're so wealthy. This is our blind spot. We're sitting on billions and billions of dollars. It's not a beat down or a guilt trip. Like, I'm, I'm with you in this. But come on, let's just think before the Lord. Let's let him give us strategies. Lord, what would you have us do to further your purposes and your kingdom in this world and in this earth? A release. Verse 34. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Such an amazingly, profoundly powerful verse. Principle number six, the, the most important thing about our money on earth is to maximize reward in heaven. Number seven, the direction of our money, the direction that our money is moving is the best indicator of the direction that our heart is moving. The direction that our money is moving is the best indicator of the direction that our heart is moving. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart's on it. Where's your treasure? Where's my treasure? I want to read a quote from C.S. Lewis that I like very much. Here's what Lewis said. I'd like for you to ponder it. He said, I do not believe that one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If we're eternally minded. I think that's, I think that's true. And if you'll notice in your Bible, verse 35, this is no accident of Luke 12, starts a whole section on being ready for Jesus' coming. These go together. If our heart's moving in the right direction, because our treasure is in the right place, we're going to be ready. Be dressed in readiness. Spiritual alertness comes from living on the ragged edge of discipleship. It's really true. Two questions and I'm done. Number one, it's a two-question test. What does my use of money say about what makes me happy? And secondly... Does the use of my money demonstrate that I am really living for eternity? Would you bow your heads? Let's just pray. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to do whatever He wants to do in us. Father, we're so grateful for your great heart, for the graciousness that you poured on us is incalculable, so amazing. Lord, you saw all of these testimonies this morning of your sons and daughters 
giving testimony to your goodness in their lives. You're so gracious in God. We're grateful. At this moment, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would encounter us, that you would cause us to be completely transparent and honest before you. Your word says that we are naked before you. You know and see down to the core of our being, down to the joints and the marrows, and so you already see. But would you help us to have an honest heart? And would you help us to once again get the leeches off of the world mind, of all the rationalizations? And would you help us to live with our money as true disciples of Jesus Christ, who have given up everything, gladly sold everything to get the treasure in the field. Lord, we have joyfully sold everything to get the pearl of great price, which is you. So those things aren't ours anymore. We sold them. We traded them gladly for the much higher value, which is you. And we say, whatever we have, Lord, we acknowledge we didn't get it on our own. You blessed us with it. Everything that we have that's good has come from your hand. We pray that you would help us to be good stewards and that we would do money like real disciples of Jesus. We want your kingdom to come. We pray it. We want your will to be done. We pray it. We want souls to be saved. We pray it. We want children to be rescued from sex trafficking. We pray it. We do pray and we mean it. But Lord, how can we connect with what you're doing with our stuff that all too often we've taken ownership of again and we repossessed it from you. (laughs) We say it's yours. I pray that you would help us to be an extravagantly generous people that as we stand before you, you would be pleased with how we navigate our stuff. Give us direction. Give us conviction. Give us wisdom and give us clarity, we pray. And Father, I pray for a special grace that you would help us to not slide back into the leech pool of rationalization, of self-centeredness that we're bombarded with every day. Help us to stay free, to live free, and to walk free before you, and to walk on the sharp edge of discipleship. I pray. I thank you, Father, for every man, woman, and child in this body. They are a blessing. They're a blessing to you, and you love them dearly and deeply. I pray that you would encourage their hearts, that no one would leave confused or, or beat down, but that everyone would be challenged by your Spirit, and that we would all respond with a loud yes to you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen, y'all. Thank y'all. I do love you. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.